Church family, you may be seated, and as you do, please take your copy of God's Word and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We will uh, pick up in verse 8 this morning, and we'll complete this chapter here uh, in our series. Thank you to Pastor Michael last week for starting this chapter uh, for us. It's uh, good sometimes for me just to be able to sit and worship and to learn and to sit under the teaching of God's Word. Uh, And so I appreciate the opportunity to do that. Um, But I'll be honest with you, uh, there is nothing like being able to stand up and proclaim God's word to you, uh, his people here, our church family. So it is great to be back uh, in this pulpit. I'll invite you now to stand with me. We have a lot to consider this morning, so we're going to dive right into our text. I do want to read it all this morning. Uh, We stand to honor the reading of God's word, but we're going to read all of verses uh, 8 down through uh, the end of the chapter because I want you to hear the full context of uh, what is happening as Uh, Adam and Eve have now sinned in the garden. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to me to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam... And for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you this morning, whether we have heard this story for the very first time or for the hundredth. 
I pray everyone in this room will recognize the gravity of the consequence of this one first sin that each of us are also guilty because our parents before us were guilty because in Adam we all find our guilt. Father, would you open our eyes to the truth of your word now, we pray. Let it pierce our hearts in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. In 1667, a poet, a British poet named John Milton published 10 books of poetry containing over 10,000 lines. These 10 books of poetry he entitled Paradise Lost. Paradise Lost became one of the most popular works of Christian fiction of all time. It is very likely one of the most influential books other than the Bible ever written. Many of the images that we paint in our minds when we read this story comes from not the scriptures, but from paradise lost. For instance, the artwork for this second series in Genesis is a hand reaching out to an apple. Have you ever wondered why it's always an apple? The Bible never tells us it's an apple. You see, in church history, as the church painted scenes of uh, biblical texts and particular scenes of uh, the garden, before the 1600s, it was any number of fruits. It was often depicted as a fig tree or a pomegranate. Rarely was it an apple. But twice in these 10,000 lines of poetry, Milton refers to it as an apple. Now, he does so because he understood the uh, context of the Latin root behind apple, which can be both a general fruit and a specific fruit, but also sounds similar to the word for evil. Milton understood what he was doing, but that became lost to time. And for us in pop theology, it just became an apple. That's one of many examples of the way Paradise Lost, this work, has influenced the way that we think about this text and about Satan and hell and the fall of man. At the beginning of that epic poem, in the first stanza, the 25th line, Milton states his purpose, that he writes that poem to justify the ways of God to men. Here was Milton's goal, to address why things are as they are. If God is so good, why is our world so fallen? If God created everything as we saw as very good, why are we so tormented by our own personal sin and the effects of sin in our world? And why do we experience death? So Milton set out to explain to his contemporaries in a fictionalized version of Genesis 3 exactly why 
we experience these things. Now, Paradise Lost is not Scripture. But Genesis 3 is. And Genesis 3 tells us the story, as we saw in the first seven verses last week, the story of the first sin. And as we approach verses 8 through 24 today, the consequences for those, that, that sin. And Genesis 3 introduces to us a pattern that we will see nearly every single week between here and Genesis 12. And that is the pattern of sin, judgment, and grace. Nearly every week in the coming chapters, we will see the effects of sin, sometimes in the lives of individuals, sometimes in the lives of all of the people of earth. We will see God pronounce judgment upon individual people and by the time we get to Noah, the entire human race. But always, until we get to Genesis 11, grace is present. The grace of God that sustains us is revealed over and again. So while we so often call Genesis 3 the fall, we would refer to it here as I've titled this, like Milton did his poem, Paradise Lost. We need to also recognize that there are hints of grace here that lead us all the way to the end of time. That God is not done working. And he is providing for his people. So we will begin to see this pattern this week and it will unfold for us in chapters four and beyond. But it begins with the sin. Now last week, if you were not here, Pastor Michael preached those first seven verses where the woman was tempted by uh, the serpent to take hold of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is understanding and taking ownership of moral choice. This is the consequence of eating from that tree. And Eve, who was tempted by Satan, the, the serpent who is representing Satan here in, in its first form, in his first form, revealed to us in Scripture, uh, the, the temptation was this: Did God really say? Don't you really know better? Wouldn't it be better if you knew what God knows? And Eve reached out her hand and took from that tree and gave to her husband alongside of her. And they both ate. And verse 7 tells us they recognized their nakedness. Their nakedness represents shame and guilt. They knew it. They had sinned against God and they felt it in their core immediately. And this passage begins by telling us that they have hidden. And so we will see first God confronting the sins of Adam and Eve. The Lord first confronts Adam, who blames his wife. Now you'll notice in verses 8 through 12 that God asks Adam a series of questions. And if you think about this long enough, it should strike you as somewhat odd that God would ask Adam anything. Because God knows everything. And so this passage is not telling us that God did not know the answer to his question. But by recording it like this, the author is showing to us the absurdity of the actions of Adam. To think that he could sin and hide it from God. 
To think that he could hide from the presence of God in the garden of God by tucking himself behind some tree is absolutely absurd. But that's what he does in verse 8. He hears God walking in the cool of the day and he goes to hide himself from the presence of God. And so God asks the first question, where are you? God knew where he was. God not only made Adam, he made the tree behind which Adam hid. He made the garden within Adam hid. Before the foundation of the world, God knew where Adam would be hiding. Because God knows all and sees all. None can hide from the face of God. But yet he asks Adam, where are you? And Adam says in verse 10, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. I was afraid because I knew I was guilty, Adam says. I was afraid because I was first time in my life ashamed of my actions. So I hid myself from you. Then God asks another question in verse 11. Who? He goes from where to who? Who told you that you were naked? Now again, God knows how Adam came to that conclusion. God saw this act unfold. He knew what was happening and yet he asks because he is getting to the core of what's happened here. Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? God asks. Now again, God knows the answer. He knew that Adam had eaten of the tree. But he's giving Adam the opportunity to confess. <laughs> Parents, kid gets in the Oreos without permission and you stand in the pantry and say, I wonder who ate all the cookies? And the kid stands there shuffling their feet. Chocolate coming down their face. Wasn't me, right? That's what Adam does. He points the finger. The, man, the woman who you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit and I ate. So the first sin here in Genesis 3 is followed closely by the very first excuse, the blame game. She did it. And not only, mind you, does he implicate his wife, who does he ultimately implicate? God. You gave me this woman. This is all on you, God. I was fine until she came along, and she came along because you thought I needed her. This is on you. This is the pot looking at the potter saying, why did you make me this way? You gave me this woman. Then the Lord confronts the woman who also blames, instead of blaming her husband, she blames the serpent. The Lord God said to the woman, another question, by the way, what is this that you have done? He knows. And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So Eve too points the finger. She could have pointed at her husband. She could have said, my husband was supposed to lead me. My husband was supposed to care for me. My husband was supposed to, to, to help me and, and as I help him. And he is the one responsible, but she doesn't. She just kicks the can on down the road a little bit and points at that serpent. He deceived me. And I ate it. So God doesn't question the serpent, you'll see. 
God stops there. And this forms a chiasm in the scripture. It's just a literary device that starts in one place. And we've already seen this in Genesis, uh, in Genesis 2. It starts in one place, rises, and then, and then comes back down. And so on the, at the base of the pyramid on both ends is man. He starts by questioning man. He will end by judging man. Higher than that on the pyramid is the woman. The woman is the second questioned and the second judge. But at the top, we have the serpent. She blames the serpent and he begins his judgment of the serpent. So we see now sin. This is our pattern. It's very important, by the way, to understand. I know I keep coming back to this because I want you to know how to read your Bibles. Very important to understanding how to read the first part of Genesis. Sin, judgment, grace. Okay? So we have sin. Now we're in the second phase, judgment. And we see the judgment is revealed to us here. Judgment is not yet carried out, but it is revealed. The Lord first judges the serpent. He says in verse 14, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field, and on your belly you shall go, and dust shall you eat all the days of your life. Now stop there for a moment. And this is dealing primarily with the serpent's role within the animal kingdom. Now there's uh, there's, there's more to this. And so we're going to come back to uh, this passage towards the end today. But I want us to just stay really local for a minute and see what God is saying to the serpent itself, to the serpent's role within the animal kingdom. Cursed, which that word could also be translated banned, are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. I don't know if you've spent a whole lot of time around livestock and, and animals, but if you have, you'll notice that a lot of varying types of animals get along together. It's not, it's not odd to see different types of animals coexisting in a field or in a barn, but it is odd to see any kind of animal coexisting with a snake, right? Nothing wants to be around a snake. There's nothing in the animal kingdom that's like, I'm just going to go hang out with this snake. None of them do. Because that's the serpent's role within the animal kingdom is to be despised, to be cursed, to be banned above all the beasts of the field. And he says, on your belly you shall go and you shall eat, you shall eat and uh, you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now this doesn't mean that he actually eats dust. Belly here and this crawling on the belly and the eating of dust doesn't mean, and I've heard people say this, this means the serpent used to have feet. No, it doesn't. That would make it an iguana. It's a sign of humiliation and subjugation. It, the serpent existed in Genesis, at the end of Genesis 3 in the same way that it existed at the beginning of Genesis 3. But now its position is seen as humiliated, subjugated, banned. Last week in, in his sermon on these first seven verses, Pastor Michael talked about the Hebrew word for crafty, which the serpent was described as being the most crafty of all the animals, being the Hebrew, Hebrew word arum. Well, the word that's used cursed in verse 14 is the Hebrew word arur. Just change one little letter from arur, arum to arur, from crafty to cursed, banned, kicked out. Then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And again, there's more to verse 15, but just stay local for a minute. Stay with the serpent and the woman and children, is there very much that a woman and children hate worse than snakes? No. 
If I were to poll the audience and say, what are the things you're most afraid of? Probably half or more of you in here would say snakes. There's no such thing as a good snake. Right now, I know some of you like snakes and I know some of you are like, oh, don't kill that snake. That's a good snake. Most of us are like, no, no such thing. They're all bad. One of my favorite pictures of my wife is her holding a machete in one hand and a five-foot snake that tried to get after our dog in another. I should have put that on the screen. Why didn't I ask for that? They fail right there as a pastor. Because there is enmity between you and the woman. Look, between your offspring and hers, there is hatred. Snakes are constantly biting at humanity, and humanity is constantly trying to stamp out the snake. More to say there, but we'll come back to it later in the sermon. Next, we see the Lord's judgment against the woman. Now, this is just one verse, just 16, but we're going to take it in two parts. One relates to purpose, to fruitfulness, the, the command to be fruitful and multiply. And the other re- results in her, uh, relates to her relationship with her husband. Author writes in verse 16 to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. So the seed in verse 15, that offspring that's mentioned in verse 15 that, that will have enmity between, uh, between itself and, and, the, and the serpent will come with great physical and emotional anguish. That's what the word pain there means. The word pain is not just physical pain. So often when we think of the first part of verse 16, we attribute this to why childbearing, the actual act of delivering a child is so painful for women. And it is. For human women, the act of bearing children is far more painful than that of many others within the animal kingdom. It's different for human women because of the fall. But to limit it to that, to the, to the physical act of pain within childbearing, would, not, would be to not see fully what is happening here in the text. There is not only pain in the moments or hours of labor, but childbearing, child rearing, particularly from mother, is painful. And here's what's the most painful part about it sin. The effects of sin on herself as a mother, as she relates to her children, and as sin so ravages her children, and a mother tries to shepherd her children and guide her children and mother her children, there is great pain in the sin of children to a mother, more so than there is to a father. And that is a part of the curse. Because of sin, motherhood itself is difficult. It's what God says. Then he continues in verse 16 and says, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The harmony of the husband and wife union that was perfect. Remember, there were perfect relationships in, in, in the garden we saw in Genesis 2 that, that uh, Adam and Eve related perfectly with God, perfectly with nature, perfectly with their work, and perfectly with one another. No more. No more. That, that harmony is now broken. She will have a different desire than he will. 
She was created to be his helpmate, but now she's going to think contrary to the way that he thinks. Her desires are going to be different than his, and then he shall seek to rule over her. She was to be a helpmate. He was to love and protect her. But now she will desire contrary things, and he will abuse his position as head. And instead of guiding his wife, he will now rule over her wife, or over his wife. As the stronger of the two sexes since the fall, men have taken advantage of women time and time again, abusing their relationship because of the fall. It was not intended to be that way by God. It was perfect in Genesis 2. And now that relationship, that harmony is broken. In your notes, you'll see Genesis 4, 7. We'll skip that. We'll come back to it next week. And I'll refer back here to uh, Genesis 3, 16. Next, we'll see the Lord's judgment against Adam. And Adam, and Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it and all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Now stop there. Because these verses 17, 18, and the first part of 19 all address Adam's responsibility to keep the land that God had commanded him in Genesis 2 to keep the garden, to tend to it. And we talked about work and that work is not a bad thing. That God created work in Genesis 2 is a good thing. That Adam worked the ground and kept the garden and found great joy in doing so. But now sin has changed that relationship for Adam and his work. Just like the relationship of uh, motherhood has changed for women, the relationship of work has changed for Adam. Because of sin, work has now become toil. No longer enjoyable. No longer easy and carefree. There are now thorns and thistles. The ground will be cursed by the sweat of your face, you shall eat your bread. So the very work of Adam is cursed, and he continues into verse 19, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Here's what we see in verse 19. Physical death has come to humanity. In the perfect paradise of delight in Genesis 2. There was no death for Adam and Eve. But now, physical death has come. For out of the dust God formed Adam, and to the dust Adam shall return. But I want you to understand something. It's important for a right understanding of Genesis 3, because we know by reading later chapters that Adam is still going to live for a very long time. But here, in this moment, when God is saying you shall return to dust, looking for the day that Adam would die a physical death, Adam and Eve were already dead. Death has already gripped them. They are dead men walking in front of God. The moment they reached out their hand and took from the tree that God said not to take from and consumed of its fruit, they became dead. 
As God introduced that tree to Adam and Eve in Genesis 2, he says, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you surely shall die. You see, there are two kinds of death. There's the kind of death we are all so familiar with as the passing of loved ones around us, and that is physical death that awaits us all. The other kind of death that everyone in this room, everyone watching online must come to grips with is that we are all spiritually dead, at least all outside of Christ. Because of this sin committed so long ago, all of us are born dead. The Apostle Paul writes in the book of Ephesians, for you're dead in your trespasses and sin. So it is spiritual death that Adam and Eve experience the moment they take of the tree and they now wait physical death, returning dust to dust. Now, before judgment is actualized, God promises, provides grace. We'll see it in two places, and we have to look for it a little bit, but we're going to see it. First, there's an earthly purpose for man and woman remains. God's not done. Look at verse 20. The man called his wife Eve. This is the first time she's called Eve. Until now, she's just the woman. But she's now been given a name, Eve, and that name means the mother of all living, because she was the mother of all living. So go back again, be fruitful and multiply, one command, keep the land, the other, The role and responsibility of man and woman in the garden was clear. Work the garden, be fruitful and multiply. And both of those remain. The purpose of humanity on the face of the earth remains. That we would be fruitful and multiply and that we would work and serve God. It is just now more difficult. But God could have, because God can do whatever he wants. He could have And the first sin of Adam and Eve wiped the slate clean, completely started over, destroyed everything, done away with it all. But he doesn't. Grace is demonstrated here in Adam naming Eve because they still remain in their purpose. Their purpose is now just going to be more difficult. Second, guilt and shame are covered And a future hope is foreshadowed. Look first in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Remember, while God is speaking to them, can you imagine this? The presence of God in the midst of the garden standing before Adam and Eve. And there they are, stark naked. Ashamed covered only by what they could put together to try to cover themselves. And as we saw last week, it's impossible for man to cover our own guilt and our own shame. And so God provides for that covering. Here in verse 21, God sees his creation, Adam and his wife, Eve, in their guilt and shame and does something to cover it. The physical manifestation of their guilt was their nakedness, and God covers their nakedness. And how does he do it? He takes an animal, because there was no other way that this could be done. He takes an animal and kills it, skins it, and clothes them. 
And we get to our point of application, let that sit in your mind because blood was spilled to cover the guilt and shame of Adam and Eve here. But there is another point to be made. There is a future hope that is foreshadowed in Genesis 3. To go back with me to verse 15, I will put it, this is the This is God speaking to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, locally, I just, just like, we said this, this applies just in the, in the animal kingdom to the way that all animals and the way that humans, women, children relate to snakes, but there's something bigger being foreshadowed here. There's a greater promise In Greek, this promise is known as the proto-evangelium, the first good news or the first gospel. This is the first prophetic word that we have that one day evil will be conquered. One day the people of God will overcome. One day someone will come who will crush the head of the serpent. You see, often in Genesis, the word offspring there, and he says, in between you, your offspring, and her offspring, so often in Genesis, the word offspring related to the woman's offspring refers to a distant group. A, it is a collective noun. And what's being promised here, what's being foreshadowed here in this first judgment is a promised victory for a group of people. That there would be people, there would be offspring from Adam and Eve who would eventually overcome evil, who would overcome the serpent, who would see his head crushed. Then it turns to singular. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the text then switches to a singular noun, but one that is representative for the people mentioned, representative for that offspring that will crush the serpent's head. Now, this promise is, is partially fulfilled throughout the Old Testament. You say, wait, I thought this was about Jesus. Hold on. It's partially fulfilled throughout the Old Testament. As as God places leaders for his people who lead his people to do good. So you can see partial fulfillment in this, by the way, in the life and the work of David. Not full fulfillment, but partial. That, That God works through people representing his people towards good. Ultimately being fulfilled in Jesus. That he would be the one who represents us all, crushing the head of the serpent. So grace is provided as guilt and shame is covered and a future promise to believe is given. Then judgment is actualized. See, God revealed his judgment, but now the judgment will be carried out. The Lord removes Adam and Eve from the garden in verses 22 and 23. We read, the Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now let us reach out, uh, now lest he reaches out his hand and takes also of the tree of life and eats and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. 
If you remember back to Genesis 2, there was two, two special trees. The garden had every good tree in it, the Bible tells us. Everything that was beautiful, everything that was needed was right there in the garden. But there were two special trees. One, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from that one. They have. The other was the tree of life. They were never commanded not to eat from the tree of life. We don't know if they ate from the tree of life. The Bible doesn't tell us. But now they are spiritually dead. And one of the commentators that I read this week in preparation for this sermon wrote extensively about this and, and painted this picture of, of spiritually dead people having access to the tree of life would mean that the dead would be walking around forever. And God says, we can't have that. You see, now they've, they've taken ownership of their own morality. Now they are dead. They are in broken relationship with God because they have now sinned and so they can no longer have access to the tree of life. And so God removes them from the garden to remove that access. But then the Lord places a guard at the entrance of the garden, denying them access. They can never return. Verse 24, he drove, them, he drove out the man and at the east of the garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim in a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. No longer could man have access to that which would give him life. Here's the way that we need to see this. Because of his sin, no longer did, God, did man have direct access to God. That's what the cherubim represents there at the east entrance of the garden. The cherubim show up in multiple other places in the Old Testament. For instance, in Exodus 25, two golden cherubim are placed on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, wings stretched out across the mercy seat, and the mercy seat represented the presence of God. In the next chapter of Exodus, Exodus 26, God commands them to weave cherubim, images of cherubim, into the, into the veil that covers the Holy of Holies, the very veil that would one day be torn in two from top to bottom when Jesus dies in our place, cherubim. In 1 Kings 6, once the temple has been constructed, two 15-foot-high wooden cherubim were carved and placed on either side next to the Ark of the Covenant in the temple. You see, cherubim represented two things. First, they represented the presence of God. That's why they were on top of the ark. That's why they were uh, woven into the tapestry of the Holy of Holies. That's why they were uh, engraved in these huge wooden images and placed within the temple because God was there. But when we take those images in, uh, when we take Genesis 3 into account of those images, we also see something else, and that is the cherubim are guarding that access to the presence of God. That no longer would man enjoy a relationship like Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden. So what? The devastating effects of the fall still felt today are only overcome by the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Here's what Adam needed to believe. Follow me with this. Because, because of what, what, what's known as progressive revelation and, 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 and progressive redemption, people needed to believe what God had revealed to that point. And here's what God had revealed to this point to Adam, that one would one day come. That was it. 
And Adam needed to believe and trust that God would provide that. And God continued to reveal uh, his word to people. And God continued to reveal uh, redemption, the redemption story. More became necessary. More belief became necessary. And then we have the hindsight of, of, of the benefit of hindsight of looking back and understanding that all has been revealed. And it is all culminated in Jesus. That he is the one who overcomes. We cannot overcome on our own. We on our own are weaving together leaves, trying to cover our sin and shame and can never do so. But God, through Jesus Christ and his atoning work on the cross, can overcome the devastating effects of the fall that we still feel today. The Apostle Paul, looking back on this story in Genesis 3, teaches us two very important things in the New Testament. The first is from Romans chapter five. And we read this, therefore just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. The kind of death that Paul is addressing here in Romans five is spiritual death. So because of the death of Adam in the garden, we are all dead in our trespasses and sin. You skip down that verse to verse eight, that chapter to verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to the condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, that's Adam, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's Jesus. Now the law came to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abound all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So Jesus solves the problem of spiritual death. Jesus becomes the yes to Genesis 3.15 and the rest of the Old Testament, that one would come that conquers spiritual death. But he didn't only conquer spiritual death. He conquered physical death as well. And so in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul again looks back into Genesis 3 and talks about physical death. He says, for as by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. So the death that he's referencing here by tying this to the resurrection of the dead is not spiritual death, it's physical death. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits at his resurrection. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. For he must reign until he has put all all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So we get this picture from Paul in Romans and 1 Corinthians that Jesus is the one who conquers death, both spiritual death and physical death. And what does he do here in these latter verses of 1 Corinthians 15? He puts them under his feet. And he shall crush your head. God said to the serpent. And Jesus does. Conquering sin and death for us because we can't conquer it on our own oh but Jesus by his atoning death on the cross puts it all under his feet that we may now be spiritually alive and we may one day physically live forever because he has made a way I invite you now to take 
those of you that will be participating in the Lord's Supper with us, take your elements. Now, a little bit of instruction is necessary. There's a clear piece you have to take off first, and that gets you to the bread. As you work to try to access yours, I'm going to keep preaching. In Genesis, at the beginning of Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Eve. Says, did God really say you couldn't eat of that? And here's what he says. If you'll just reach out and grab and you'll eat of it, you'll become like God. So the first sin was a, the first temptation to sin was an invitation to take and eat. Right? That's what he says. If you'll take that and eat it, you'll be like God. So sin entered the world through an invitation to take and eat. Then, the night before his crucifixion, gathered for the Passover with his disciples in the upper room, Jesus breaks bread and says, this is my body. Take and eat. So where the first sin was of the temptation to take and eat of that which God had said do not take and eat of, salvation is provided by the same offer. Take and eat that which God freely offers. So when we do this, we do it in remembrance of him. Now you'll peel the pink part. Go back again to Genesis 3. The grace that is provided there, the covering of guilt and shame. God reaches out his hand, slays an animal, spilling blood, takes its skin and covers their nakedness. Do you know what has long passed from this world? That skin. It's lost to history. Millennia ago, it returned to the dust, just like Adam's body returned to the dust. Because any earthly covering of sin would only last so long. And that's what the whole Old Testament tells us. It's why the sacrifice must be repeated regularly for the sins of the people, because it only lasted so long. Oh, but that first spilled blood because of sin foreshadowed another spilling of blood, one that would last for an eternity. Blood was spilled to cover the guilt and shame of Adam and Eve in the garden, and blood was spilled once for all to cover our guilt and shame forever. So we do this in remembrance of him. I want to end by looking ahead. So often here in the first few chapters of Genesis, we have turned to Revelation because the beginning shows us the end. God's not done with the tree of life. We will see it again in Revelation 22, which is a picture of the of, of what things will be for eternity, the physical existence that we will live in resurrected bodies with our God forever. 
John writes, the angel showed me the river of water of life, bring it, brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Through the middle of the street of the city also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. By the atoning work of Jesus, sin has been conquered. And you today, my friend, can live. And we together can one day live with him for eternity. But this is not automatically applied to you. Here's what it requires on your part. Not a a single work in this world will do. It requires for you to simply believe. Believe that Jesus is this atoning, everlasting sacrifice in your place. You believe that, you put your faith in Jesus, you confess him as Lord and he will give you a new heart. He will take you who are dead and make you alive and promise to you the inheritance of eternal life forever with him. You can share in that today. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can share in it today. You can have it, you can take hold of it if you will but believe in the atoning work the sacrifice, the broken body, the spilled blood of Jesus for you. Would you believe that today? Would you call out to him, confess your sin? Tell him, I need you, Lord. I need you. I've been trying to sew my own garments for so long, but I need you to cover me once and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you do not leave us dead in our sin. Do not leave us alone to try to figure this out, but you provided Jesus who paid the penalty for our sin in our place, that we who were born dead in our sin could be made alive through Jesus Christ and that we will one day reign eternally with you with full unfettered access to the tree of life and to our God. I pray that those listening now here in this room and watching with us online, if they've never believed that, that they would today unto salvation, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.